But this time, let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 2 as we read from this second psalm in the book of Psalms, Psalm 2. Psalm 2, we'll be reading the entire psalm. Let's give ear now to God's holy word, beginning in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then He shall speak to them in His wrath and distress them in His deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. We continue our sermon series on Abraham as heir of the world. We've been considering uh, for a number of weeks in the evening the words of the Apostle Paul from Romans chapter 4, verse 13, which says, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It goes on to define the seed of Abraham here as those who believe in the way that Abraham believed. In other words, the church of God. Whether we think in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, Abraham is the father of all believers. And the church which professes and proclaims the true gospel of justification by faith alone righteousness by faith, uh, is the seed and offspring of Abraham in Christ, who of course is the ultimate seed of Abraham. And so we've been considering the way in which God's people in Christ inherit the world by way of more and more people, nations even being grafted into the church through professing the faith of Abraham who is the heir of the world in that sense. Uh, We've been considering the the doctrinal statement that says all nations will join together in a corporate profession of the true religion prior to the return of Christ. Uh, We've seen that in the book of Genesis, and now we proceed to consider the way in which this teaching is brought forth, perhaps as clearly as anywhere else in the Bible, in the book of Psalms. 
that throughout the book of Psalms, we see clear statements, clear assertions, predictions, prophecies embedded into the worship lyrics that God has given His people, not just in the Old, but all the more now in the New Testament, this teaching that all nations will in fact join together in a corporate profession of the true religion prior to the return of Christ. Now, it's not surprising that we would find this teaching in the Psalms because we find this teaching throughout the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, hence the sermon series. There's no way for us to exhaust this topic without considering Genesis and Psalms and Isaiah and Daniel, perhaps others of the prophets, the Gospels, the epistles of Paul, the book of Revelation. All of these parts of the Bible have enough material in them and then some for at least one sermon. This teaching is so pervasive throughout the Word of God. And so as Luther spoke of the Psalms as a little Bible, we're not surprised to find that as with many of the other teachings of the Bible, God has placed it in the lyrics of our New Testament hymn book, the book of Psalms. And the statements that are in this book of Psalms concerning all nations turning to the Lord are extremely clear. Uh, We believe that Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture itself and that where there are passages that are unclear, we go to more clear passages. If there's a doctrine somebody wants to derive from a parable, uh, we might look to some other more clear passages that don't have as much figurative language. And we would say, well, we go to Paul's epistles or we go to to this or that passage that gives a more clear statement on the, the facts of the case in order to get a broader, more accurate picture of biblical doctrine on that particular point. Well, in this book of Psalms, the statements and the data that we're gonna be using to address this point are by no means ambiguous. These are not figurative statements. We're not dealing with, like in the book of Revelation, which is very difficult to interpret. Uh, Really, it's the, you know, it's the apex of biblical interpretation. It comes at the end for a reason. You almost have to really get a handle on everything else that comes before it to try to give it a whirl in, in understanding the book of Revelation. Uh, But here in the book of Psalms, as in many of the other passages we're going to look at, the statements are very clear, uh, and there are many of them. There are so many verses that it's impossible to just say, well, you don't want to base this on one text, and so it's it's spoken of here, but maybe it's just uh, some kind of exception to the rule or we've misunderstood it. I mean, how many times does God have to say the same thing over and over and over again, and That's what we're going to find in the book of Psalms. In fact, as I mentioned, there's enough material in all these various portions of the Bible to to give us more than we need for an entire sermon series, not even analyzing these things, but just surveying them at face value. That should tell us right off the bat that this is something that's very important to the Holy Spirit to communicate to us. We're not dealing here with baptisms for the dead or head coverings, or the beast of revelation. Not to say those passages can't be interpreted consistently, but there's far more material on the idea of all nations joining together to profess faith in Christ before his return. There's far more material material on this than there is even for something like our practice of singing only the Psalms, or 
not using instruments in worship, or so on and so forth. There are many things that some of us hold dear, and there's nowhere near the amount of material as there is on this point. And certainly, when we come to the book of Psalms, we see this is a theme that runs from beginning to end. Now, we've chosen Psalm 2 as a starting point. In some sense, we heard a a very helpful exposition of Psalm 1 uh, from our, our brother, Reverend Samuel, recently. And Psalm 1 sets the tone for Psalm 2. Psalm 1 represents the way of life, the way of salvation, the path of true godliness. And it begins with, blessed is the man. And so we've seen in the previous sermon from our brother that it's the blessed man, the believer, who's trusting in the blessed Savior and so on and so forth. But it's interesting that Psalm 2 ends with a reference to the blessedness of those who put their trust in Christ. So in other words, there's something of a bookend going on here, bookends between the beginning of Psalm 1 and the end of Psalm 2. These psalms are connected. We're not going to really delve into that very much, but just to say, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, all the way through to blessed are all those who put their trust in him. That's not by accident. And what Psalm 1 presents in terms of the individual, the individual believer, the individual obedient, repentant believer following Christ from grace to glory, is presented in Psalm 2 on a corporate national scale. And so there's uh, an exhortation here not as much to the individual, but to nations and kings and judges of the earth that from a corporate standpoint, they would recognize that the trajectory of Psalm 1 applies in some sense as well, a slightly different sense, but it applies to nations of the world. And it applies to them such that they must take heed and kiss the Son and put their trust in Christ and seek to be blessed in Him, lest they be dashed to pieces. Now, Psalm 2 begins with words that are quoted for us in Acts chapter 4. The apostles, following the resurrection and ascension of Christ, are preaching in Jerusalem in the temple, and they're brought up on charges for that, and they're they're being persecuted. But in light of that, the apostles and the members of the early church in Jerusalem quote these verses, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? And if you go to Acts 4, they interpret this as a reference to the Gentile nations, first of all, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Romans, and the people, often the word people can be translated people or peoples, we're gonna see that to some extent. Um, So it's not always an exact science, but here, as is often the case, we'll probably see this in Isaiah as well, when you have the Gentile nations set over against the people, it's often taken as a reference to the Gentiles and the Jews, and that's how the apostles interpret it in Acts 4, that the people refers to the Jews. So the Gentiles and the Jews, the nations, the Gentiles, and the people, the people of God, plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers, you've got the kings, Pilate, Herod, You've got the rulers, the Sanhedrin. You have this picture being presented of the opponents of Jesus Christ. They set themselves 
and take counsel together against Jehovah, that's God the Father. Uh, You could say God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but I think in this psalm, it's specifically the Father on behalf of the triune Godhead against Jehovah and against His anointed. That in Greek is Christ. Hence the early church quoting this, saying that uh, the Jews and the Gentiles have plotted against Christ, they've put Him to death, they've sought to oppose Him, and now they're persecuting us. Now they're seeking to stop the proclamation of His law and of His gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. They're fighting against Jehovah and against His Christ, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So this doesn't merely apply to Herod, Pilate, and the Sanhedrin. This is an ongoing application that the early church understood applies to all opposition to the gospel, which often comes from wickedness in high places. Rulers, kings, and uh, peoples and nations. And so here what you have is these nations saying, we will not be restricted by the law and gospel, you could say by the word of God. We won't be restricted by the word of the Lord. We won't be restricted by the word of Christ, the anointed one of the Lord. We will not be restricted. We will not order our affairs according to the limitations placed upon us by God's law and by God's truth. And it's at this point uh, that we do need to take stock of the fact that the reference here to the kings of the earth is, is a phrase that appears throughout the Psalms. We're going to see it time and time again. So I want you to notice that the kings of the earth are at this point opposing Jehovah and his anointed. But we're going to see other passages where there's a development to where those kings of the earth that were opposing Christ, those kings and nations and kingdoms, are then spoken of in in the very same terms as then serving the Lord and uh, obeying him. But in any event, the kings of the earth at this point are rejecting him, both the Gentiles and the Jews. Now, in verses 4 through 6, we find Jehovah himself, God the Father, uh, laughing at the whole thing. This is ridiculous. There's no way that the nations and the rulers, the Jews, the Gentiles, their, their leadership, there's no way that they're going to succeed in their attempt, in their enterprise. Now, oftentimes we see this and we say, well, this is saying that the effort of the enemies of Christ to extinguish the church will fail. And there will always be a church on planet Earth. And so their desire to extinguish the church and place shackles on the church will ultimately fail. But you see, that's not actually the enterprise that Jehovah is laughing at in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. What does Jehovah find laughable about the Gentiles and their kings and princes? What, What is their enterprise, their attempt, that he finds laughable, that's never going to happen, that's going to utterly fail? It's not placing shackles of persecution on the church and causing the church to be exterminated. It's actually the idea that the nations will resist the limitations of God's law. They view God's law, His commandments, His truth, His doctrine, and all of the aspects of the Word of God, they view these things as handcuffs. 
as bonds. It's bondage. It's slavery. These are cords that are restricting us. And we know that's how the nations of the world view the law of God today. That's how they viewed it for the most part, apart from a few exceptions, throughout most of the last 2,000 years. This is saying their attempt to avoid being governed by God's law will fail, and Jehovah thinks it, it's, it's laughable. Now, you see there how very easily we can misinterpret the Word of God and miss the very optimistic perspective right off the bat in the book of Psalms. The moment it makes reference to the opposing nations and kings that are fighting against the gospel, it says not only is it laughable that they would exterminate the church, it's laughable that, that the gates of hell are going to defend successfully against the incursions and invasions and the conquest, ultimately, of the gospel over those king, kings and kingdoms and nations. Now, verses 7 through 9, you see a reference to the sonship of the Messiah the only begotten Son of God, I will declare the decree. This is Christ speaking. Jehovah has said to me, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. There's debate over whether this refers to the eternal generation of the Son by the Father in eternity past, or whether, because the way that's quoted in the New Testament, whether it has some reference to the resurrection, or maybe in some way the resurrection brings forth the reality uh, and declares the sonship of Christ. Uh, for our purposes, the point here is that the, the Messiah is the divine Son of God. And certainly, He's not only brought forth from all eternity, but He was brought forth at the resurrection as well, as a testimony to His divine sonship. And we're told that upon His being uh, brought forth as the Son of God with power, Romans 1, that it says, the Father says to the Son, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So we've been thinking about Abraham as heir of the world, the seed of Abraham as Christ and all of his people in him. And here we find that Christ, the Messiah, the messianic seed of Abraham ultimately does inherit all nations, all ends of the earth. This is Abrahamic language. It's the land of his inheritance. Emmanuel's land is not just uh, that portion uh, in the Old Testament times that we speak of as the promised land, the land of Canaan or Palestine. But in the New Testament, Jesus says, all power in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and disciple all the nations. And you can see... He claims the nations for his inheritance. Are we doubting that Jesus asked? Of course he asked. Of course he asked of the Father and was given the right and title to all nations. The ends of the earth as his possession. Not as God, he already owned that. He already had that possession as the creator, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But as the mediator, as the God-man, as the constructor and builder of his church, as the author of the Great Commission, he's now given all authority in heaven and earth to advance his kingdom and disciple those nations. Verse 9 tells us that because of the opposition that we saw in verses 1 and 2, he needs to wield an iron rod. 
And so you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And then the kings and judges are warned. You don't want that to happen. Kiss the son. Worshipfully submit to him. Put your trust in him. And you'll be blessed. You'll be blessed as individuals. Uh, We pray for kings and those in authority, as Paul says, that they would come to the knowledge of the truth but also in their capacity as kings and judges, that they would submit to the scepter of Jehovah and his anointed, that they would, verse 12, kiss the sun, lest the sun be angry and they perish in the way. And you say, well, this is saying that these nations, if they rebel, they'll be destroyed at the second coming. Well, that's not actually what Psalm 2 is referring to. The emphasis here, certainly it's true that believing in Christ gives us blessing and exempts us from the wrath to come in eternity. That's definitely true, and I'm sure there's some application there. But the emphasis here, if you look at the way that John picks up on this in the book of Revelation, is actually that the Lord Jesus Christ breaks his enemies and then rules them with a rod of iron, rules the nations that were opposing him, and he shepherds them with that rod of iron. If you look at uh, Revelation 19.15, this is Christ on the white horse. He comes not with a physical sword, as the dispensationalists teach, that he, he shows up and sets up the millennium as this military kingdom, and you've got the Apache helicopters, and so on and so forth. But Jesus comes, and and this is a spiritual kingdom. His weaponry is spiritual, not carnal. It's the word of God proceeding from his mouth. Uh, A sharp sword, verse 15, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. In the Greek, the word rule is shepherd. It's unmistakable why it's not translated that way is perhaps anybody's guess, but the word is the word for shepherd, not someone who is ruling them in the sense of striking them and sending them to hell, but shepherding them. Uh, He strikes the nations, and he himself will rule them. He rules the ones he strikes. So this idea, well, he strikes the wicked and they go to hell, and then he shepherds his people, and these are two different groups cannot be substantiated from the text. John is telling us that Psalm 2 is predicting that the same nations that were opposing, the same kings and nations that were opposing Christ, will be dashed and struck, and he will himself rule them, those self-same nations, and he will shepherd them with a rod of iron. Very important to see. Psalm 49 tells us that for the unconverted, for the wicked, death is their shepherd. Not so for these nations that are converted by the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, proceeding from Christ's mouth on His white horse of conquest. And it's the very ones that are dashed to pieces that are then shepherded. That doesn't comport with the second coming. And once again, I mentioned that we're dealing here with the kings of the earth. The kings of the earth. Look at a couple passages just in in brief here. Psalm 138, verse 4. Psalm 138, verse 4. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord. 
when they hear the words of your mouth. You see, there's the sword coming out of the mouth of Christ. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord. So he doesn't just destroy the wicked nations. He converts them. And he raises, he either converts their kings or raises up godly kings in their place. All the kings of earth shall praise you, O Lord. Psalm 148, verse 11. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth are among those who are commanded to praise the Lord. And the verse we just looked at says they will. So those are the kings of the earth, Psalm 2. Now, we continue on, we go to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. And this psalm obviously is a psalm of suffering unto glory. Suffering or humiliation unto exaltation. You have the first half of the psalm speaking of Christ's suffering on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you have the second half of the psalm, midway through verse 21 where the suffering Savior now confesses that God has answered him, Lord, you have answered me. You have heard me. And of course, God in hearing the Lord Jesus Christ, his prayer on the cross, uh, we're not denying that he, in a sense, forsook him and took away the felt sense of his presence and Jesus experienced uh, the equivalent of hell itself. But God also respected Christ's sacrifice. He accepted it. He heard his prayer and he raised him from the dead. And verse 22 through verse 26 speaks of Jesus. It's quoted in the book of Hebrews. It speaks of Jesus in relation to now his New Testament church that he has purchased and established through his death and resurrection. Hebrews 2, 11 and 12 quotes these verses. He says, I will declare your name to my brethren. That's the church. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. So New Testament church, New Testament worship, Jesus, wherever two or three is, are gathered together, he's there, he's speaking through his word and ordinances in the midst of the assembly. You who fear the Lord, praise him, all you descendants of Jacob, glorify him, and fear him, all you offspring of Israel, speaking there in this context of the Israel of God, the covenant people of God, uh, into which, as we heard in the psalm meditation, the Gentiles have been brought in through faith. He says, For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him, he heard. So what's the reward of Christ's affliction and death? My praise shall be of you in the great assembly, literally in Greek, the megachurch. And what Jesus is saying here is, that again, in the context of New Testament worship, he will be present, he will be uh, declaring his word, he will be praising God in our midst, as, as if he's singing in us, through us, with us, as we sing the Psalms uh, in this great assembly. Uh, and, and, and he goes on to speak of uh, those in the assembly, the poor shall eat and be satisfied, verse 26, those who seek him will praise the Lord, let your heart live forever. So that's the New Testament church receiving grace and power from the resurrected, ascended Christ. Now, what's the result of that New Testament church as it goes out to disciple the nations? Verse 27, 
all the ends of the world. So remember the Great Commission, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. All the ends of the world. In Hebrew, it's the word earth, not world. Again, it's difficult to say why King James and New King James say world. Uh, the word is earth. All ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Jehovah. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. That's, again, Abrahamic language. In Christ and in his offspring, in his church, all families of the earth, all nations of the earth shall be blessed. And here we're told that throughout all ends of the world or, or the earth, that a great multitude will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nation shall worship before you. That's saying all the major ethnic groups will submit themselves and come before the Lord professing the true gospel and worshiping the true God through Jesus Christ. This is language of salvation, not of praising God in, in eternity. This, this is not people that were converted on earth and now they're in heaven. These are people that from one end of the earth to the other, remember and turn. The word turn there is the word for repent. All ends of the, of the earth shall remember and turn, repent and turn to the Lord and worship him. This is conversion. Doesn't happen after the second coming. Nobody, not a single person will be converted after Jesus returns. All conversions, all true repentance unto life occurs in this life, in this world, not in the world to come. Why is this extension of the gospel going to happen? Verse 28, for the kingdom is Jehovah's and he rules over the nations. So God himself is king of all the earth. Christ has been given the scepter of universal authority. This is right out of the Great Commission, except it's the other way around. But the point is, uh, Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth, and therefore all nations will be discipled. They'll be converted, and they will remember and turn to the Lord. Uh, we see the, the great expanse of all the people affected here. The prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. This is not something that's going to be happening in heaven. Some people say, well, these verses, it's, it's, these are people that were already saved. They're in heaven. It's not referring to what happens in our day. But the, the issue is, who in heaven is going to be going down to the dust? Nobody. So it's not talking about that. Even he who cannot keep himself alive. That's talking about this world of sin and misery and death. Nations will be converted. Verse 30, a posterity shall serve him. Not going to be posterity in heaven. Okay, we'll not, we won't be having children and posterity in heaven. This is referring to time and history in the new covenant age. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. Again, we're not going to have birth announcements and you know, gender reveal. It's not going to be happening in heaven, okay? Uh, this is talking about history, not heaven. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. This is the Great Commission. And it's referring to things in this age. We go on to Psalm 47. Now, we've already said something about this in a previous sermon. So I'll try to be brief. 
Psalm 47. Uh, Really, you can break it up into two sections, verses 1 through 4 and verses 5 through 9. Uh, Verses 1 through 4, you'll notice right at the outset, the Gentile peoples or nations are being urged to celebrate, to clap their hands and rejoice. And what are the Gentiles supposed to rejoice in? Well, they're supposed to rejoice in the fact that they're conquered by God's people. That's what it says. Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. That's the nations. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. For Jehovah Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us. So clap your hands, you peoples, because you're going to be subdued under the people of God and nations under our feet. So rejoice, Gentiles. You're going to be conquered by the people of God which at this time is largely consisting of of the Jews. Now, that doesn't really make sense to us at first. And perhaps uh, it would be astonishing to to ask people to clap their hands and rejoice that they're going to be conquered by this other people. Uh, We're told then that God's people will inherit the land that he has chosen out for them, verse 4. So, God's people are going to conquer the land. They're going to receive the land inheritance. The Gentiles are going to be subdued under their feet and conquered. So God's people prevail. The enemies of God's people are subdued. Now, uh, I'm not sure if the best way to illustrate this, but I'm going to give it a whirl. Uh, If you had a baseball player who began the season with the uh, Chicago White Sox, and you told that player, you said, uh, with, let's say you had knowledge of the future, and you told that player, you said, rejoice, clap your hands, celebrate, because the Detroit Tigers are going to win the World Series. That wouldn't make any sense, right? They're going to defeat the White Sox in the American League Championship Series, and they're going to go on and win the World Series. Rejoice. This guy's uh, a player on the Chicago White Sox. Okay, that wouldn't make a lot of sense. Unless it's the case that at the trade deadline, he's traded from the White Sox to the Tigers, in which case, though it doesn't make sense at the time, it will make sense later, and he'll be very happy that the Tigers beat the White Sox and won the World Series. You see the point. The peoples and nations among the Gentiles will be converted. The fullness of the Gentiles will be brought in to profess the true religion, and they will become the people of the God of Abraham in that sense. And therefore, the blessing upon God's people will be for them because they'll be largely incorporated into the people of God. And you see this in verses 5 through 9. Verse 5, God has gone up with a shout, likely pointing to the ascension of Christ, which is so crucial in so many of these psalms that deal with this topic. God has gone up with a shout. That is, God the Son in the person of Christ has ascended. Uh, The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. And then it goes on to say that we ought to praise Him. Why? Because He is our King, and our God is King of all the earth. And you see, especially in the reigning Christ, He's gone up, He's ascended, He's King of all the earth. He reigns over the nations. Verse 8, He sits on His holy throne. The princes of the people, should be plural there, should be plural, ESV has plural, it should be plural. The princes of the peoples, have gathered together in the Greek Septuagint translation of the Hebrew, it's synagogued 
together. There's a synagogue meeting. There's a worship assembly of the princes of the nations, the peoples, gathered together. And the princes of the peoples gathered together are called the people of the God of Abraham. So the princes of the peoples are the people of the God of Abraham. And how's this going to happen? Isn't Satan going to put up his defenses? Well, the shields of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. So Jesus possesses the gates of his enemies. We saw that in the book of Genesis. So Psalm 47 says that the, the, the nations will be incorporated into the people of the God of Abraham, whose name means father of many nations. Psalm 67. We heard in our psalm meditation on Psalm 96, it's a missionary prayer, if you will. And if you look at Psalm 67, it's very similar. Uh, the main difference with Psalm 67, although I guess you could say Psalm 96 later on in some sense would, would show an answer to the prayer and, and something of the, the rule of Christ there. Uh, psalm 96 is difficult because it, it seems like part of it's referring to Christ's reign now and part of it perhaps the second coming. But we have an exposition of that, so I'll leave that alone coming next time. But, but Psalm 67 definitely is a missionary prayer, but it also shows God's answer to that prayer. So God's people are filled with a desire that God would shine his face upon him by showing his salvation to the Gentile nations. It's a missionary prayer, verses 1 through 5. You can see, uh, God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. And, and they're, they're saying, let the peoples praise you, so on and so forth. But then you come to verses 6 and 7 where you see the fruition of this prayer. What's the answer to this prayer? Then the earth shall yield her increase. This is the harvest. Sown in tears, reaped in joy. Then the earth shall yield her increase. God, our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. It's not just a prayer at the end. Some, I can't remember how our psalm book translates it. Some, sometimes this is converted into something that we wish would happen or it's sort of contingent, Lord, do this so that it might happen. But the text is pretty clear here. The earth shall yield her increase. God, our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. That is reverently worship him, kiss the sun, same idea. So the prayer will be answered, and the language is all the earth, all the nations of the earth, uh, all the ends of the earth shall fear him. And I just want to once again emphasize, the language is so clear. Uh, if, if it was said once or twice, but I mean, how many times did it have to be said before we say, wait a second, this is actually going to happen and we don't have to kind of chisel around and make it say something else. There will be a spiritual harvest that will go far beyond anything that we can imagine. And I'm tempted to talk about Pentecost and the, the, the feasts of the Old Testament, how Pentecost is a, a first fruits of the harvest to come, but, but we don't have time for that. Psalm 68 gives us some more particular examples of this harvest. What are some of the nations that are going to be turned to the Lord? 
in this harvest. Uh, once again, you can see Psalm 68, verse 18, makes another reference to the ascension of Christ. Paul quotes this in Ephesians 4, Christ led captivity captive, he gave gifts to men. Uh, and you can see it here, verse 18. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, or we could say received gifts for men, right? The spiritual gifts of the church. Even from the rebellious, uh, he gave some to be apostles, and Paul was rebellious, but Jesus redeemed him and gave him as a gift to the church, uh, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. Our God is the God of salvation. Uh, he, he, to him belongs escapes from death. Okay, verse 21. God will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespasses. Speaking of God opposing his enemies, blessing his people. Uh, if, if you continue on and you look at verse 29, because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring presents to you. So here you have kings worshiping the Lord. Christ has arisen. God is at work in his providence, raising up some, casting down others. And we have kings that are bringing offerings of worship to God, to Jerusalem, as it were, to the church. Uh, we see Christ rebuking the warmongers among the nations. Rebuke the beasts of the reeds, the herds of bulls with the calves of the peoples till everyone submits himself with pieces of silver. So many of the kings aren't bringing the offering. Jesus is going to subdue them until they do, until they uh, submit to the prince of peace and turn their swords into plowshares, scatter the peoples who delight in war. But notice the specific examples. Verse 31, envoys will come out of Egypt. When we look at Isaiah, we'll see verse uh, in uh, chapter 19 of Isaiah. Uh, I would encourage you to read that. We've referred to it in a previous sermon. Uh, it's uh, Pastor Mark Abdel Messias, probably his favorite passage as he's uh, from Egypt and uh, ethnically Egyptian, and he's ministering the gospel in that region of the world as we speak. We've had him preach for us in, in years past. Uh, but he loves Isaiah 19 because it speaks of the labor that he's engaged in right now, sowing in tears, and he will reap in joy. And Egypt and Assyria and Israel will be in covenant with God. And among the Egyptians, we're told, Isaiah 19, that five of the cities will be in covenant with God and one will be called a city of destruction. Five out of six. And that fills his heart with joy and expectation and hope. But envoys will come out of Egypt, historically an enemy of God. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. This is the proof text for our ministry in South Sudan. Cush for Christ. Ethiopia, Cush, will quickly stretch out her hands to God. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Well, they will sing, and Ethiopia will stretch out her hands to God according to this Psalm, and it's significant. Uh, Ethiopia is mentioned in a similar capacity in Psalm 87, verse 4. But Ethiopia and Egypt are descendants of Ham. So in our previous sermon, we saw God punished Ham by cursing Canaan, 
And many people view the descendants of Ham as somehow uh, second rate in terms of this gospel harvest. This is not the case. The descendants of Ham will share in this worldwide global discipleship and Ethiopia will stretch out her hands to God. Egypt will send her envoys to Jerusalem and all nations will come to Zion and walk in the light of the Lord. Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is a psalm of Solomon. It's either from Solomon as the author or it's a psalm of David that is concerning Solomon. That is, it begins, Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. So it seems that David's writing this concerning Solomon, but of course, as is often the case when God is speaking of David and Solomon and his covenant with the line and house of David, Solomon is really a a placeholder and a type and a shadow of the greater Solomon, the one who is greater than Solomon, who is yet to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. In some sense, you can look at the New Covenant period as consisting of two main sections, one in which uh, Jesus rules in the midst of his enemies, beginning of Psalm 110, the Davidic period, which we're in right now, there's a lot of uh, persecution and conflict and the gospel is going forth, Jesus is ruling, but in the midst of a majority of his enemies, but uh, we believe there's coming a day when the Solomonic stage of Christ's kingdom will come and it will be a, a reign of peace and righteousness, not a millennium where Jesus physically returns and sets up shop with a military kingdom in Jerusalem and drops atomic bombs on people. No, we're talking about a spiritual kingdom of the gospel bringing peace and righteousness and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Solomon is the man of peace, the prince of peace. And Psalm 72 speaks of the gradual, eventual fullness of this spiritual harvest among the nations. You can see, we're not going to go through it in in a ton of detail here, but this psalm is not speaking of heaven. It speaks of conditions in this age. You read this psalm, you see numerous references to the poor and the needy, to people dwelling in the wilderness, to enemies licking the dust, You see references to the sun and moon and an anticipation of when the moon will be no more, but his reign shall be while the moon does endure. So in heaven, there's no need for sun or moon. The lamb is the light thereof. But in this time and space, in this world, the heavens have not yet been uh, melted away, as Peter says in 2 Peter, dissolved by fire. So there is a sun and a moon. And you you can see the emphasis there of the timetable in which these things happen. Verse 5, they shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure. Verse 7, abundance of peace until the moon is no more. So that's this age where there's a sun and moon in this world, not in the world to come. Uh, Also, there are kings of Sheba, which is Arabia, and Seba, which is likely, again, Ethiopia. And uh, you can see that in verse 10, the kings of Tarshish, perhaps that's Spain, as some people would say, and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. 
Yes, all kings shall bow down before him. All nations shall serve him. There's no indication in the Bible that there are going to be kings and kingdoms in heaven or that there's going to be Sheba and Seba and uh, Tarshish or Spain. These are nations that exist in this life and in this world, the, the, the time period of the Great Commission. And so all the violence and oppression, verse 14, the gold, I suppose you could say streets of gold, but I think we understand, hopefully we're more sophisticated than that, that there won't be... Um, gold in heaven, you know, exchange of goods and services. Verse 15, uh, verse, uh, also verse 15, uh, prayer will be offered for him. In this life, we intercede for the church of Jesus Christ, which is his body. We intercede for the cause of Christ. We won't need to be doing that in heaven. And once again, verse 5, throughout all generations, we won't be having generations in heaven. So it's this age, and notice the extent of Christ's gracious rule in his church. Verse 8, he shall have dominion also from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him, and his enemies, people from Satan's kingdom, will lick the dust like the serpent. And as we read, the various kings, even, yes, Verse 11, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. How many times does it have to be said till we say, yes, that's actually going to happen? And at the end of the psalm, it tells us that this is what David was hoping and praying for. I don't think verse 20 is intended merely as the end of book two of the Psalter. It seems more fitting that when it says the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended, that it's referring to the end of this psalm, verse 17, his name shall endure forever. His name, that is of Christ, shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. David's saying this psalm that's about Solomon as a type of Christ and about the full extent of Christ's kingdom throughout history, that kingdom that at the last day he'll offer up to his heavenly Father, he's saying, This is what I'm longing for, this is what I'm desiring. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God. This is David's desire. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. If, if this happens, and wow, that's it. That's what David is praying for, longing for, for the completion of Christ's redemptive work throughout history on the throne. And certainly the, the life to come, of course, he was looking forward to. But here's the, the prayer of David for the extension of Christ's kingdom. It has been ended. You could translate that fulfilled. Fulfilled. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, by way of those first 19 verses, are now fulfilled. And yet they're not fulfilled in our day, are they? There are 7,400 unreached people groups or ethnicities in the world. Uh, 3.4 billion people, 42% of the world population. Numerous unreached nations, ethnic groups, peoples, tribes, and tongues that have yet to have any meaningful gospel witness even sent to them 
or made available to them in their own language. We're nowhere near seeing this fulfilled. Go, to the, go online to the Joshua Project. Uh, I, I love that reference because Jesus is the greater Joshua. He conquers the land of his inheritance. And uh, just because God has guaranteed that we're going to see the discipleship of all nations doesn't mean we sit on our hands. Israel was guaranteed the land of their inheritance, and they had to fight for it alongside Joshua as he rode, as it were, on the white horse. And you see, we as Christ's people need to be riding with him. We need to be believing and trusting in him, following him into battle, not with physical warfare, but with the word and spirit of God. Spiritual armor. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. We're more than conquerors. And we need to fight for it. And we need to fight the good fight to see Christ's kingdom advanced and to see David's prayer and even the prayer of Christ. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. To see these prayers answered by the Lord. Uh, 42% of the population, 7,400 unreached people groups. We've got a ways to go. The idea that Jesus who said, I will build my church in the same way Solomon built the temple, right? The the idea that the greater Solomon is going to say, I will build my church, and he stops with 42% of the project unfinished, I don't think so. I don't think Jesus is going to return till he has fulfilled the fullness of these passages. Uh, A couple more points here. I'll try to be very brief. Psalm 102. Psalm 102, verse 13. Should be comforting to us because it speaks of God's church when it's in a low condition. It's essentially just dust and rubble. But we're told here, you will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time has come. For your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. How do we view the church when it's stumbling and bumbling and making mistakes? How do we view the church when it's compromised and backslidden or when it's persecuted and weak and vulnerable in this wicked world? Well, we're told here that the precursor to the Lord arising and reviving His church like never before is that people love the church even when it's not super lovable. Verse 15, So the nations shall fear the name of Jehovah and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord shall build up Zion. He shall appear in His glory. He shall regard the prayer of the destitute and shall not despise their prayer. This shall be written for the generation to come. He goes on, uh, verse 22, when the peoples are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. Very clear, not just individuals, kingdoms gathering to serve the Lord when he sends this unprecedented blessing. Last psalm we'll look at is Psalm 110. This is the psalm that's most often referred to in the New Testament. Uh, There are more portions of Psalm 69 that are referred to in the New Testament, more different sections that are referred to than any other psalm. But 
Psalm 110, in some sense, is the most quoted portion of the Old Testament altogether. It's just that they quote often the same verses again and again, not different portions of it. But Psalm 110 begins with the ascension. The Lord said to my Lord, David here speaking, he says, Jehovah said to my Lord, which is Christ, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. As Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians, he says that he shall reign until he has made all his enemies his footstool. So Jesus remains seated at God's right hand until his enemies are his footstool. He doesn't defeat his enemies at the second coming in the sense of, of course he does, but he waits until they are placed under his feet before he returns. There's a substantial victory of Christ over the enemy nations and kings through the gospel, and then he returns. And death at the resurrection, death is the last enemy to be conquered, not the nations. They've been substantially conquered by the gospel. And of course, there's a, there's a rebellion at the end, so on and so forth. But the substantial victory comes while he's sitting at God's right hand. He doesn't leave the right hand to return until his enemies are under his feet. So he doesn't leave in order to put them under his feet. It, it, rather, he doesn't leave until they're under his feet. He shall reign until that time happens through the gospel. And then you see verse 2, the Great Commission. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. So he's converting people by his word and spirit. Verse 4, he's, he's the priest king ruling at God's right hand after the order of Melchizedek. And notice, while he's at God's right hand, verse 5, the Lord, which is David's Lord, which is not Jehovah but Adonai, this is Christ, is at your right hand. Christ is at the Father's right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. And it goes on to speak of that wrath. That's not the second coming. Jesus does not defeat earthly kings uh, in this passage by coming from the right hand to earth, but he does it while he is at the right hand. Verse 5, so while he's at the right hand, he's destroying kings and nations and heads of countries, dashing them to pieces so that he can then shepherd them with a rod of iron. And that's the emphasis, verse 7, not the end of history, but Jesus is just getting warmed up. He's on the warpath and he's thirsty, so he shall drink of the brook by the wayside, therefore he shall lift up his head. So he's on the warpath and he's defeating his enemies, and he's going to stop for a drink and keep on going. That's not the second coming. That's a major advance of the kingdom of God on earth. Now, what's the application? Well, let me break the application up in two ways. First, for those who are persuaded of the thesis, uh, don't think, I'm, I realize not everyone's persuaded of this, but if you are persuaded based on these passages so far, that all nations will join together in a corporate profession of the true religion prior to Christ's return. If you're persuaded of that, I would urge you to apply this doctrine to your own nation, to your own ethnic background, to your own people in that sense, to your own society in terms of where you're presently living, this country as well, 
to apply it to the state of Michigan, to apply it across the board, but apply it in meaningful ways, like our brother, uh, Reverend Abdel Messiah, who applies it to his own people, the Egyptian people, and the promises of God for them. We dwell on planet Earth. Our nation is a nation on Earth. Michigan is part of the ends of the Earth. And the scriptures tell us that there will be a pure Michigan. Not fully, but substantially. That to the ends of the Earth, Christ will rule and shepherd all nations, even this nation, even this state, even this people. As I said, Israel was guaranteed Canaan, but led by Joshua, they had to conquer it. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Be faithful. Fight the good fight and know that you will be victorious. That we're just setting up shop for something. It may, it may be that our country is wiped out and some other people group inhabits this by the time this happens. We shouldn't uh, rest on our laurels and, and assume that our nation won't be judged. But the point is, this land will be occupied by worshipers of God in times to come, far beyond our wildest imagination. Secondly, for those who are not yet persuaded, or perhaps you say, oh, not yet, I won't ever be persuaded. Well, why not? And, and, and I ask the question, why not? Not as a sort of belligerent question, but an honest question. And I would urge you to jot down why not. Jot it down, write down, well, what are the verses that don't seem to jive with this thesis? What are the, the objections from the Word of God where I see this, this couldn't be true or it's being exaggerated or in some way the message is not fully uh, hitting the mark of the biblical presentation? Write those things down and, and then listen to the, the additional sermons in this series. Wait and see if any of those objections are addressed in later sermons and think it through and search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give thanks for the clarity of your word and for the ministry of the Holy Spirit who illuminates our hearts and minds and who leads us into all truth. Lead us into your truth concerning what we ought to expect in terms of the harvest of the gospel in this age prior to our Lord's return. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.